Well, here we are, another episode of the Semi-Seminary, and we're continuing our look at the Acts of the Apostles. In this episode, we're going to look and see what happens when the church experiences its first level of persecution and the martyrdom of the Apostle Stephen. I'll see you on the other side. The way that this six through eight is kind of framed, this is like a movie. Whenever you see how this part of the story ends, you're going to have a movie image in your head. So uh, again, we're going to be tonight's lesson, Acts uh, section four, persecution to expansion. It's going to deal with looking at Acts chapters six, seven, and the very beginning of eight. So up to this point in the story, The church, the early church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, has been on an incredible run of successes from the day of Pentecost, right, until uh, where Peter preached in the middle of the city of Jerusalem, converted thousands of people. Every time it seems like the authorities have an attempt to squash the movement, it seems to just make them stronger and more bold. And we see a, uh, we also see a successful attempt uh, by these early Christians to begin to create a radical, powerful society within the existing society. The work of the early church was then, and should be today, about changing the way that we live with one another from the individual up. The revolution of the kingdom of God here on earth was one of the heart. You'll notice in nothing that we've studied thus far at the, uh, with regard to the birth of the church, church, was there any attempt by the followers to overturn the political structure from the top down. This was a rethinking, a reimagining of what society should be like as followers of Christ from the individual's heart up. And so far in our story, the wins and successes for these early Christians was piling up. But things are about to change. Uh, Like anything, the larger and more complex a organization or community gets, the greater uh, the likelihood there is for tension within that community. So how does the early church deal with adversity? Acts chapter 6 opens the very human problem I think that we all can relate to, and a grace-filled solution that I think in the end, when we understand what's happening, we can truly admire. So I'm going to begin reading here chapter 6. We're going to read all of 6, 7, and beginning of 8. There's going to be a stretch there uh, where uh, I'm going to read Stephen's, what's called Stephen's Apology. I'm going to read that in whole. It's kind of a long stretch of scripture here, but it'll be worth it. There's a reason why. So in those days, the beginning of the church, remember where we've just come from, Pentecost, growing church, Peter and John going to the temple courts daily to pray. They heal uh, the lame man whom everybody knows and had been seen at the temple gates for, for decades. They couldn't deny it. And they, the the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court there, the officials, the authorities, had asked them to please stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Peter and John basically respond that that's 
just not possible. That, that the authorities can do with Peter and John whatever they wish, but they can't stop preaching what they have seen and what they've heard. And it's in those days where we see ourselves tonight. When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, I've got some definitions here that will help you kind of understand who these groups are. The Hellenistic Jews among them claimed that the Hebraic Jews, uh, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve, the twelve apostles, gathered all of the disciples, the followers of the way, gathered them all together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order for us to wait tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility, this distribution of alms and food to the widows, the poor. We're going to turn that responsibility over to them so we, the twelve, can focus our attention on prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal, this idea, pleased everybody, pleased the whole group. And so they chose seven men. They chose Stephen. We're going to talk a lot about Stephen tonight. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip. We're going to be talking a lot about Philip next time. Uh, Procurus, Nicantor, Timon, Paramenus, and Nicholas from Antioch, who was not a born Jew, but actually was a convert to Judaism from Antioch. They presented these men to the apostles who then prayed and laid their hands on them. Okay, so let's pause right there. We often think, I think, especially in the time of Jesus in the first century, we often will think of the Jewish people during this time in very monolithic terms. Like we think of the Jewish people as one big group of people and maybe followers of Christ, the Christians, as one other group of people in opposition to this other large group. But that's not an accurate portrayal of the Jewish people in the first century. And what I mean to say is that sometimes we'll just think of the Jewish people just as the Jewish people in a one-size-fits-all kind of way. The reality is, in the first century, that there is a great amount of diversity amongst the Jewish people in what was known at that time and today as the Second Temple period, Second Temple Judaism. Some of the various groups you, we already have, know of, uh, there's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both having their difference of Jewish religious thought. Uh, they're Jews, but they have different beliefs. There's also groups... Uh, there's a group called the Zealots who were militant about the overthrow of Roman oppression. In other words, they saw the message of God through revolutionary and violent terms. They saw their duty and their worship of God as a form of active opposition to the Roman oppression. Then there was also the Essenes. Uh, the Essenes become famous in the 20th century because it's their writings that are discovered in the 1940s that we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those are writings, scrolls, that were contained amongst the Essenes. Uh, those were Jews that chose to live outside of normal society and chose to live together communally 
And you might think of uh, the Essenes as uh, like the way we might think of as monks. So they lived together in kind of monasteries and they were cloistered or separated away from the rest of society so that they could focus on their relationship with God and try to minimize any form of interaction with the outside world. There are also Jews of different ethnicities, and that's what we're seeing here. These Hellenistic Jews would have been Jewish people that would have come from outside of Judea. They would have been Greek-speaking, and they would have also followed Greek culture. Then we would have also, at least in the first part of chapter 6 here, we see the Hebraic Jews or the Hebrews. These are Jews that grew up and live in Judea. Right? And they would probably have spoken either Aramaic. Well, they wouldn't have probably. They would have spoke Aramaic or Hebrew. And they would have followed Hebrew culture. Now, we know that one of the defining characteristics of Hebrews is the way that they define themselves in opposition to the other. Right? Many of the cultural rules that are set up, we find in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, often deal with... Uh, Hebrews either doing certain things or prohibiting the doing of certain things so that they may be seen as distinct from other, other cultures that they neighbored against. Okay? So even though these are Jews that would have, are, they are Jewish people, but they grew up in a different place, the Hebrews, those that would have grown up in Palestine, in Judea, in Galilee, would have looked at the Hellenistic Jews even though they are brothers and sisters in the faith, as the other. And what we're seeing in this dispute here early on is this belief by these Greek-speaking Jews that their widows and orphans are being mistreated compared to the treatment of the widows and orphans of the Hebrew Jewish people. Now, there's no evidence to suggest that that's on purpose, it just happens to define the conflict that we see amongst this group of Jews whom have now converted to Christianity. Okay, they're still living ethnically, culturally as Jews, and in many ways religiously, right? We still see Peter and John, apostles of Christ, still showing up to temple in the afternoon every day to pray in the temple, right? We're not to the point that these people have surrendered their Jewish way of life even though they now accept the messianic truth of Jesus. Okay? So earthly Judaism, when we put these kind of ethnicities to it, often is about us and them. And these Orthodox Jews would have prided themselves on not having to do with anything that they would have considered pagan, and they would have considered anything pagan that wasn't exactly like them. That's how they would have viewed these Greek Jews. So, where have these people come from? Well, let's stop real quick, because where are we? We're in Jerusalem, and now there is this huge amount, there's thousands of people that would be Hellenistic Jews that are part of the body of Christ now, part of the early church. How has this happened within Jerusalem? Well, one, there would have been a number of Hellenistic Jews that would have just by nature, by natural course, would have lived in Jerusalem. But let's not forget how they got there. Remember, Pentecost fires up, pardon the pun, 
fires up the early church with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? Why are the Jews, why are, why, what's significant to Pentecost? They've come. They've returned back from Passover. They've returned after Passover, 50 days later, and they've come to offer their first fruits in Jerusalem. So Jewish people that lived outside of Judea, these Hellenistic Jews, have returned back to Jerusalem to offer their first fruit offerings. And while they were there, they had no intention of staying. But while they're there, they hear this this sermon by this crazy guy named Peter. Their hearts are touched about Christianity and they stay. They don't go back home. Their lives have forever been changed because now they're Christians. So they have decided to stay in Jerusalem. Well, this influx of these Greek-speaking, Greek cultural Jews are the ones that's caused this tension. Um, So of the seven, what's interesting, of the seven that are chosen, each one of these, beginning with Stephen and then uh, Philip, secondly, what is interesting about these seven men that are chosen, each one of them are Greek. Now, the reason why I think that this is a grace-filled solution to the problem is even though there are a large amount of Hellenistic Jews, by far and away within the city of Jerusalem, the larger amount of the body of Christ at this point are going to be made up of Hebrews. So the Greek-speaking Jews come to the apostles with a complaint that their old and affirmed are not being treated equally. So the apostles say, well, let's come up with a way that this can be corrected. So pick seven of the whole, of both groups, pick seven to be the ones that will be in charge of this to make sure everything is administered fairly. And what we find is none of the seven that are picked are Hebrews. So they've actually decided to pick those of the minority. And I think that that's a very uh, graceful moment in the history of the early church. And as a result, I believe, of the desire not to seek power, but to seek grace and harmony, (coughs) verse 7 of chapter 6 says, so the word of God spread. The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That's significant because now we're actually seeing priests being converted. Now, we are guessing that these are going to be priests that are going to be lower on the totem pole. And I say guess only because when we see members of the Sanhedrin convert, we know their names, right? I mean, when we go to Joseph of Arimathea, right, was a member of the Sanhedrin. He converted to being a follower of Jesus. We know his name because Joseph of Arimathea was an important guy at the time. So the fact that these priests aren't named is probably an indication that they are lower-tiered priests, but priests nonetheless. And here we are now going to be introduced to the first martyr of the Christian church. Uh, And not the first martyr of Christendom, right, because that's Christ, but the first martyr of the church. Verse 8, now Stephen... A man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose 
however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the pro uh, provinces of Cecilia, uh, or Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him to spoke. So, we, he is preaching within this synagogue that's composed of these people. That's significant. Okay, these aren't, these people that are, these places that are mentioned, these are provinces of the Roman Empire, not provinces of Judea. So places like Alexandria and Sicilia and Asia are going to be places that are part of the Roman Empire, but they are Hellenistic. They are Greek-speaking, okay, Greek-cultured people. Silcia, uh, uh, sorry, Silcia is particularly mentioned, it's believed, because the, that is a province of the Roman Empire, Sicilia, Sicilia, I can't say it. And the capital of that province is Tarsus, right? And well, there's a very famous uh, person that comes from the city of Tarsus. Anyone? Saul comes from Tarsus. So the argument here is that Stephen has picked a fight with perhaps the very synagogue in which Saul attended. That's going to come back into play. Now, they couldn't stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him to spoke. So they had these debates with Stephen, but they couldn't beat him with words. So they're going to try to go after him with false witness. We're going to find out. So, again, who's mad at Stephen? These are Jews. This is a synagogue, again, that's frequented by Jews that are not Palestinian. They're not of Judea, right? Or the Roman province of Judea. Um, and again, that uh, Cilicia is Tar uh, the capital is Tarsus, where Saul uh, is from. Verse 11, uh, they secretly uh, persuaded some men. Here's the false witness part. We've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized season, Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place okay, and the law. So we get an idea of what Stephen's sermons are about and what is making the Jewish people angry. Stephen is saying something that makes them angry about the holy place or the temple and also about the law, the Torah. For we have heard him say, that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And this is actually an accusation that was falsely made against Christ as well, right? That he said that he would tear down the temple and rebuild it magically in three days. Now we know from the uh, gospel account according to John, that's not what Jesus said, right? He, he actually said, you tear down the temple and I can rebuild the temple in three days. But he didn't say, I'm going to destroy this temple. He wasn't even talking about the temple, really, was he? He was talking about the temple being replaced with the body, the spirit in the body. So all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, these, all of these Supreme Court justices, they looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. In other words, they didn't see fear. They didn't see uneasiness or worry. 
They saw the peace of Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us about later in his letter to the Philippian church. They see his calmness. Now why are they mad? Because Stephen is challenging their understanding of the story of God and his relationship with his people. Right? And, and how is he challenging that? Well, Jews are going to hold two things sacred in their religious spiritual lives. The temple and the law. And Stephen is somehow challenging notions about what the chosen people, the Jewish people, think about the temple and the law. And actually, Stephen is going to be the first apostle to make the argument that Jews are not the chosen people for the exclusivity to God, but they're actually the chosen people because they're, chose, they're chosen by God to serve as messengers of His love to the rest of the world. So Stephen's thesis about the Jewish people of which he, although is Hellenistic, is one of, is that we as Jews are God's chosen people, but we're not chosen people at the exclusion of every other person on the world that's not Jewish, but actually the chosen of chosen people means God entrusted to us the message of His love for every creation in the world. And that's what our job is. Our job isn't to just sit back and enjoy the fact that we happen by complete biological accident been born into the right race of people, but rather it comes with a responsibility that our job is actually to clearly and succinctly argue to every person that we meet, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, that God loves them and offers them salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, how is that different than Peter's message, for example? Peter, the first sermon uh, we hear at Pentecost, uh, Peter we hear preaching in the, the Solomon's porch in the temple. Well, Peter's message is different than Stephen's because Peter's message was a message to the Jewish people that they are to repent because they missed the coming of the Messiah. Right? Peter was not necessarily preaching about what's to come outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. He was actually preaching to the, the, what happened inside the hearts of the Jewish people within Jerusalem. So Peter wasn't preaching to Gentiles or about Gentiles and their salvation, but Stephen is. And that's going to anchor the high priest. We suspect would still be Caiaphas, the same high priest that would have tried Jesus. So the high priest then asked Stephen, are these charges true? We are right at the beginning of chapter 7, D, um, of Acts. To this, Stephen replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. Now, here's where this is called Stephen's Apology. So this is going to be a long section of Scripture that I'm going to read, but it's necessary that we read the whole thing. Brothers and fathers, listen, listen to me. The glory of God appeared to our father, Abraham, while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. 
And God said to him, leave your country and your people. And God said, I go to the land and I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and he settled in Haran. After the death of his father, Terah, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. This is Stephen recounting their history to the Jewish Supreme Court. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and after they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and the Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family. There were 75 of them in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Sechem, and he placed in the tomb in the tomb that Abraham had, brought, had bought from the sons of Hamor at Sechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated and all the wisdom of the Egyptians was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came up upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian Yesterday, when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush near, uh, in the desert near Mount Sinai. 
When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses fear, uh, trembled with fear and did, de- did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses... They, the people, had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and delivered by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness when the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and their hearts turned back towards Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch, the star of your god, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I'll send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern that he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God had drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, David's son, who built a house for them. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? He is quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah there. You stiff-necked people, he's quoting Yahweh there. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever even a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. That's the end of what we call the apology of Stephen. So let's look at, that's a lot of stuff. That's basically the whole of the history of the Jewish people from Abraham to Jesus, basically, in a nutshell, right there. So let's look at the argument that Stephen's making and why the next verse will say, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. What's made them so upset? That's right. But let's tease out specifically what Stephen's argument is making. 
So let's go back to the first paragraph of his apology. That's going to be, uh, let's see here. Verse 2, that's right. To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he, that's Abraham, was still in Mesopotamia. And it was even before he lived in Haran. He told him to leave your country and your people. So God comes to Abraham, right, in Mesopotamia. Now let's look at the very last paragraph. The very last uh, paragraph is a verse, uh, beginning with verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. And then he quotes the prophet Isaiah here. Okay, Stephen is making a very, very succinct statement about where God resides. And what he's saying is God doesn't reside in the temple. There wasn't a promised land. There wasn't, this was back in Mesopotamia. This was in Ur. And God was there. And fast forward through all of this history of the Jewish people, at the time of Jesus, and Stephen's still quoting, Isaiah saying, God doesn't live in houses. God is bigger than you, Jewish people, are in it's it's through the hardening of their hearts. Okay? But they are are limiting God. They're placing God in a box, quite literally, the temple. Because if God doesn't reside in the temple, then the temple system is severely flawed with its power and legitimacy, right? And not only that, another thing I think Stephen is making, and here is very, very subtle, but here's where Stephen begins talking about what God values in faith and to whom God is trying to reach. Because as we look through this discourse of Stephen's brief history of the Jewish people, we notice that each person, Abraham and and Joseph and Moses, each one of these people, God sends favor upon. And each one of them had the courage to do something. Leave. When God directed them, when God interceded in their lives to take them outside of Jerusalem and outside of Judea, the, the men that trusted God and did that were those that found favor with God. So Stephen is making a very, very subtle argument here about who is favored amongst God. And it's not just the chosen people of Judea, but it's the men and women of the world that hear and respond to God's direction. That is super, super important for Stephen, right? Because Stephen, like other prophets, have been warning the Jewish people for centuries about just hearing the wisdom of God, but not doing anything about it. That's what got them in this mess in the first place. 
And so Stephen is saying there is something very valuable that we have been missing in our relationship with God. That God places favor upon men and women who not only hear the wisdom of his truth, but act as a result of it. This is going to inflame the Sanhedrin. Because as he is attacked, Stephen, subtly, as he is attacked, both the validity of the temple and the strength of the Torah, because basically what he's saying is, finding favor with God isn't just about following these rules, but allowing your lives to be transformed to where you might go to a place where you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, but you trust in God. That's finding favor with God. It's not the 613 commands that we find in Leviticus. Okay, The Sanhedrin, what he's basically saying is, everything that you guys stand for is wrong. And you are wasting all of our and God's time by acting like you're important. That's basically, subtly, what Stephen is saying. The Sanhedrin... They don't take too well to this resolution. And instead, they become furious. And they gnash their teeth at him. But Stephen, remember, face like an angel, full of the Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man Standing at the right hand of God. Now I believe that to be a true and literal event. But I also believe that that has something to teach us in the 21st century as well. That there is a tremendous amount of peace that can be gained by us when we focus on the right hand of God. And not focus on those that are gnashing their teeth all around us. And so Stephen is focusing on Christ in this moment. Although he doesn't mention Christ, does he? He calls him the the Son of Man. The Son of Man. And this is actually going to be the only other time in the New Testament where we hear anybody refer to Jesus as the Son of Man other than Jesus himself. Happens to be the only time. At this, the Sanhedrin, you can imagine, not only have we decided to find you guilty of heresy... But even in our ability to to pronounce judgment against you, you continue to blaspheme. And he continues, if you are seeing God glorified and you're seeing Christ with him, you're blaspheming us as we're sentencing you to death. And they covered their ears. And they yelled at the top of their voices. And they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Now, what's interesting is this is not an execution. The Sanhedrin did not have the power to put anyone to death. This is a lynching. This is vigilante justice. Although the Sanhedrin had the ability to pronounce guilt or innocence, they did not have the legal authority or ability to condemn anyone to death. Meanwhile... The witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And that is the first martyrdom of a Christian apostle. So let's back up here a little bit. And we have been introduced to this seemingly important, but we're not quite sure character of this guy by the name Saul. So how would Saul describe himself in this particular moment, if he could, in Acts chapter 7? Well, let me just jump to Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, and I'll tell you how Paul would have described himself in this moment. For it is we who are of the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, Paul says, have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, great, but I have more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. There was no mistake by my parents. Parents' responsibility to circumcise their male children on the eighth day, by the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the elites, the, Benjamin, the Benjamite tribe are the elite rulers of Israelites. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. I didn't just know the law. I could expound upon the law. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, I was flawless. This is the character that we have just been introduced to here at the end of chapter 7. This young man by the name of Saul. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. The end of verse uh, 58 says. Meaning to say that whilst the crowd has decided to stone Stephen, Saul watched over their coats while they did the dirty work. They trusted Saul to hold on to their outer garments while they did the stoning. And Saul, chapter 8, bit opens, approved of their killing him. Now this relationship, this story, not only about what Stephen said to the Sanhedrin, but at the end of his life, this is going to come up again. Because Saul, when he's Paul, is going to remember this story. And this story is going to have a very, very deep impact on his life. When Saul converts to Christianity, it's this moment is one of the moments that convicts him. So even in the midst of this terrible, terrible atrocity, this, this vigilante justice, this first century lynching, God is planting the seed in the heart of Saul, who still has Christians to persecute, that will eventually bear the fruit of Paul's evangelism on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles scattered throughout Judea and Samaria godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him 
Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women, and he put them in prison. And that's where we'll end our story for this time. Well, there you have it. I hope that episode was as inspiring for you as it was for me. Join us next time as we watch as the apostles will now take the message of Jesus Christ outside of Jerusalem and eventually to the wider world. We'll see you next time here on the Semi-Seminarian.